Dying is just a scary portal into bliss. And indeed, I was lying there in bliss. I had no will of my own. Uh, I had no personality, no ego. I was just in a state of pure oneness with everything else. And all knowledge was of the universe was accessible to me, but I had no hunger for it because I had no desire for anything, no attachment to anything. I was just one with it all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Psychedelics Podcast. I'm your host, Lana. And I'm your host, Zoe. Together, we are going to be taking a journey each week, introducing you to some of the greatest minds in plant medicine and psychedelics. Our intention is to bridge the gap between science and spirituality and to ignite awarenesses, awakenings, and rememberings of divine ancient wisdom. So let's journey. Hi, everyone. Today's episode with Charlie Winninger is a very, very interesting one. So Charlie Winninger has been a psychotherapist in private practice since 1989. He is a licensed psychoanalyst as well as a mental health counselor, and he specializes in relationships, communication skills, and really working with couples from his Manhattan and Brooklyn offices. So what's really interesting for our case about Charlie is that he was a former hippie of the 1960s. He lived through multiple eras of psychedelic culture and carries with him the same spirit of peace and love today. And that is so clear in this interview. Charlie is just a psychedelic teddy bear. (laughs) Although he doesn't use psychedelics in his practice, he has um, been using MDMA and benefiting from it and his personal experiences with this medicine. And he uses it to inform and improve his performance as a therapist. So he did write a book called Listening to Ecstasy, The Transformative Power of MDMA. And we're actually going to be doing a special giveaway for this. So we're going to be giving away two copies of the book. All you have to do is go follow us on Modern Psychedelics on Instagram and go follow the publisher Inner underscore Traditions on Instagram. Then all you have to do to enter is go and leave the Modern Psychedelics a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just screenshot this review and email it to hello at modernpsychedelics.net for your entry. And this contest will run for one week after this episode airs, so the window to enter will close at the end of the day on Friday, May 21st, 2021 at 11.59pm Pacific Standard Time. If you want to go ahead and enter, you can come see the show notes for all the details and good luck. It's an amazing, amazing book that talks all about how Charlie uses the MDMA medicine with his wife and how it's really evolved their relationship. Um, And I will just go ahead and read a review of the book from Rick Dublin of MAPS. So listening to Ecstasy shows how Charlie and his wife Shelly have used MDMA as an inspiring teacher 
and friend to enhance their marriage, build a loving community of fellow travelers, and continually nurture a connection to the joys of life. So go ahead and enter the contest, contest, and let's go ahead and dig into this incredible episode. Hi, everyone. We are here today with Charlie Winninger, and we are so excited to talk to him today about all things MDMA, psychotherapy, and his book, Listening to Ecstasy. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Why don't we start with uh, your story? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this work. Well, I am a 71-year-old psychotherapist in private practice here in New York. And that's been for the past 30 years. For the past 50 years, I've been a psychonaut, one who experiments with psychedelic substances. And when I met my second wife, Shelley, in 2000, and uh, she had uh, wanted to, she was fresh out of a pretty repressive marriage, and she was very straight-laced and never so much had finished a joint in her life, and she learned about my proclivities and wanted to experiment with MDMA. That's when she and I started on this journey focused on MDMA, and in the past 20 years, we've done MDMA about 70 times. We've never had a bad experience, no Tuesday blues or anything like that. And after a while, I started realizing that this uncanny chemical was speaking to me. It was teaching me things. It was actually, it seemed to offer a whole curriculum. So I started taking notes, and that's what eventually became my book, Listening to Ecstasy. And... Uh, and we've also just realized that uh, MDMA was making our relationship, which was good to begin with, even better. And so I wanted to talk about that too, because we found that MDMA can act like a kind of emotional superglue for relationships and had a, had a whole other level of intimacy and depth as well as fun to a marriage. So those are the types of things I like to talk about. Well, we're so happy and grateful to have you here today, Charlie, to speak about this because we haven't yet had an MDMA-focused episode. And so I was wondering if you could give us a little introduction to MDMA. I personally never um, had an experience with it myself, so I'm curious as to the definition as you would describe it. Okay, well, uh, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, and it's a synthetic substance developed by uh, uh, or brought into uh, popular use by Sasha Shulgin back in the 1970s, was used by psychotherapists on the West Coast for a while. Uh, They gave it to their patients and their couples, calling it empathy. Because what it does is it opens the heart. And chemically, what happens is your body is flooded with your own serotonin and oxytocin and dopamine. 
giving you the feeling of intense serenity and well-being and safety. So it helps couples open to each other and helps people really connect. I like to call it the connect, the, the chemical of connection. Uh, it helps one connect with oneself, with others, and the world around us. And so, so am, am I answering your question? Is this uh, where you wanted me to go with this question? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Okay. And Charlie, I've heard that MDMA was developed as a a tool to help couples in therapy. Is that true? Because I never really dove that deep into it. I just, I've just heard that. It was uh, Sasha Shogun and uh, his his wife Anne and and uh, their pod experimented with dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of chemicals that Sasha was developing. And this one was a big hit in their group. And they realized it might be of use to psychotherapists. So they started giving it to them in the uh, in Northern California in the 1970s. So it was first used for healing and therapeutic purposes. But then somebody realized, oh my God, I can dance on this stuff. And it migrated to Dallas, Texas in the, I believe, early 80s and became known as ecstasy. And then it kept developing and some people didn't realize that you needed to stay hydrated on it. And they would dance in hot clubs all night long. The authorities started to uh, get a hold of uh, the fact that some people were ending up in the ER. It eventually became illegal in 1985, uh, unfortunately, simply because people didn't know how to uh, how to use it correctly. Uh, but uh, it, uh, its therapeutic use just went underground. And to this day, there are therapists trained in various modalities who are underground therapists who guide people through MDMA sessions to help them with everything from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, or depression, or anxiety, or addictions. It's used to heal many, many maladies. Yeah, I love what you said. <laughs> wow, this can make me dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, um, Shelly and I, Shelly is like, she blew my mind when I met her in 2000 because she was unlike any other human being I had ever met. <clears throat> and I mean, she was a dedicated critical care nurse that worked the ER and post-op and life and death issues every day, but she really had what uh, the Buddhists call beginner's mind when it comes to psychedelics and approached it with a, a freshness that got me turned on all over again because I could see these experiences through her eyes. And we found that play, fun, celebration, joy, can in themselves be transformative experiences and that MDMA can help with all this. And that was a revelation to me. Absolutely. I can certainly relate to that. 
I remember when I first discovered MDMA plus house music plus plus the raving scene. Mm. Um, It completely changed my life because I awoke to exactly what you said, this playfulness, this joy, this fun, this love in life and the connections that I experienced with people was, it was so deep and unlike anything I had ever experienced before. I mean, it, it was so healing and awakening in its own way. Yes. Yeah. And you could find that, oh, there are other people on this journey. There are other people who love to dance with me, other people who like to heal along with me, other people who like to connect on this level. And so it can make one feel the opposite of alone and lonely, uh, namely connected and engaged with people in a safe and heart-opening way. And that sounds like something like what you went through. Yeah. I mean, I think disconnection is the root of a lot of mental health disorders and just troubles that people go through. And I want to ask you, Charlie, as I was going through this era of my life and just going out and raving and like staying out and having the time of my life dancing Uh on MDMA, it was so much fun. But I noticed that the come down started to be really, really bad. And since I Mm. have stopped using it, and you said that you never experienced the Tuesday blues. What are your secrets? Like, how is that even possible? (laughs) Well, how to avoid the Tuesday blues is a section of of the book. Uh, The the last chapter of the book is uh, a guide to safe use and how to minimize the risks and maximize the benefits. Shelly and I found that, uh, first of all, we only use pure MDMA. And we only will buy MDMA if our seller will let us test it right then and there. We get a, a testing kit, not too expensive, from a group called dancesafe.org, just like it sounds, dancesafe.org. It's it's legal and uh, about $65 o- online. And so we always test it. It's only pure it's all we will ever use. We don't mix it with alcohol. We don't mix it with anything except maybe on the come down a little cannabis. And uh, that night, we take an over-the-counter compound known as 5-HTP, which replenishes the serotonin. And we take 100 or 200 milligrams that night at bedtime and the following night as well. And we sleep it off. I will sleep, well, um, I'm like, I'm going to be 72 next month. So I will, I will sleep like 10, 11 hours. Um, but others, you know, if they sleep, whatever really is a really full night's sleep for them, that's going to help. And we won't do it on a Sunday where you have to go to work the next day. We'll do it on a Saturday so that nothing is planned for the next day and we can relax in an afterglow. And also we replenish ourselves with good food, generally that night for dinner, Uh, a good hearty soup, salads, all these things help. 
Thank you, Charlie, and happy early birthday to you. Um, before we hopped on this call, you said that you know your experience, your experiences with MDMA have helped you navigate from middle age into senior status. And can you please speak a little bit more more to that? I have found that MDMA helps with life transitions. Uh, it. It does this in, in many ways, for me at least. Other people's experience might, might vary. But for one thing, you know, when, when I get older, uh, I start thinking about, oh, my God, um, is this on my best days behind me? Well, my MDMA experiences proved to me that no, <laughs> my best days are right now, and I can still healthily roll four, five, six times a year, which is the maximum that we can do at, at this stage in our lives, but that's plenty, and fills our lives with great joy that, that overflows into the coming days, weeks, and months. So we still have a full life. We don't feel any sense of demise. And it also helps me deal with existential issues and my mortality because as I get older, I realize that I haven't wasted anything. I haven't wasted my life. I have used my life fully. I'm now giving my my self, my knowledge, and my joy away everywhere everywhere I can, uh, in any way I can. That's why I wrote the book, which of course makes my life more meaningful, and that helps me be at peace with my age and my mortality. All these things have been helping me, and MDMA teaches me that uh, uh, I don't have to worry so much about things. And that was a big revelation to me. I've always been a, a worrier, uh, somebody who goes on a threat-finding mission uh, to to see you know what's what's wrong with me or the world or 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 my life. And MDMA has taught me relax, enjoy the ride. It's actually a, a good ride. And if you look at your life, Charlie, it says to me you see that you have really been safe and sound through most of your life. You've had your crises and you've had your traumas like everyone, but most of your life you have been remarkably safe and healthy and, if you look at it, really happy. So all these things have helped me deal with the aging process. Thank you so much for sharing that, Charlie. I think that, you know, the fear of mortality is something that so many of us on on planet Earth um, experience a struggle with, experience um, a difficult time understanding or, you know, going through loss and, and grieving the loss of other people. Yes. And it sounds like MDMA has really taught you so many lessons about always coming back to yourself, always coming back to who you are and and trusting this and and enjoying the ride as you said and so your book is is called Listening to Ecstasy the Transformative Power of MDMA and would you say like those main points that you just touched on 
are outlined in your book, these ways of which you've learned to um, listen to this, to this teacher in a way, but also listen to yourself. Yes. Uh, that's why I call it the chemical of connection, because it helps me listen to myself uh, and get tuned in to my own body, my own emotions, and uh, my own <laughs> being in the moment, really. Uh, uh, because when I'm in my head, I'm generally not in the moment. I'm thinking about what I just said or what I just did or what I'm going to say or do, but it, it helps me be in the moment. And I've heard it be called the medicine of the moment, actually. Uh, it, so it, it, it helps root me in, in the present and that I find is very healing. Thank you, Charlie, for sharing all of that. So I would love to hear, how have these lessons, these things that ecstasy has told you when you started to listen to it, how have they contributed to your work as a psychotherapist and to your practice? Well, I have found that the first name that these therapists on the West Coast gave MDMA in the 70s, calling it empathy, is really true, uh, and it, it helps me feel empathy for my clients. I prefer the word client to patient. And as a matter of fact, I, I like calling them clients because patient sort of connotes a, a doctor, healthy doctor, sick patient type of modality, and that's not empathy at all. That's sort of a, 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 a role that... Uh, puts me on top and the other people on the bottom. So I, I, I prefer the word client. And it helps me feel empathetic. And so when I'm in the therapy room with a client, my job is to not only feel my way into and through whatever they're going through and what they're experiencing right now, but also my job, as I see it, is to help MDMA inform me, my MDMA experiences. Now, I'm doing these sessions sober, and my client is sober. I don't do medically-assisted therapy, but MDMA has taught me about what it feels like to feel safe, so safe that my defenses can drop. So what I try my best to provide, as best as I can, in that therapy space is this safety and I do it by letting the person know as best as I know how, and I use various methods, that I'm really with them. I'm not only there for them, I'm there with them. We're all both on this ride together, and we're sharing this time together, and I'm there to, as a dedicated listener who's trying to understand and appreciate and feel what they're feeling so that they can then relax a little, relax their defenses, feel safe, at least for those 50 minutes, and open up. And when they do, often when they're opening up, uh, they, 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 the solutions to their problems occur to them because they have their own, we all have our own inner wisdom. And so when they feel safe enough to open up, they can hear themselves saying things like, oh, I never said that. I never thought that before, but it's really true. 
And so their solutions occur to them, their wisdom comes, and healing can come. Beautifully said, Charlie. Um, it's you. great that you, you know, come to this work from your heart space and hold such a powerful healing space for your clients and allow them to connect with themselves in that way. Mm. And um, I would love for you to touch on um, the recreational use of MDMA. Um, because, you know, as people come to explore themselves in these different ways or be searching for something beyond themselves or, or a deeper connection. Um, and you mentioned before we hopped on here that uh, recreational use of MDMA can be a good thing. So I was wondering if you could touch more on that for us. Sure. I like the term celebrational use uh, uh, because recreational use, has, it has a bad connotation. I mean, I, I use that word, but uh, it has a negative connotation for a lot of people because people associate it with frivolousness uh, or drug abuse. Uh, I like calling it celebrational use because it's either celebrating a, a, an event or a relationship uh, or just being alive. But I have found that when used correctly, and here let me just diverge into a little uh, disclaimer here. I'm not a doctor. I'm not giving medical advice. I'm talking about my own experience, Shelley's experience, the experience of friends we have. Um, it, it, it's different for everyone. And in the book, I talk about the people, the kinds of people who should not do this, as, you know, physical ailments that mean that uh, you should never do MDMA and some, a few psychological ailments that, that also mean that. But this, is, this has been my experience. And I've used, I, I've learned that recreational use or celebrational use uh, means that uh, we, can, we can add joy and fun and play, like I've said before, into the space, into our lives and celebrate being alive, celebrate uh, for Shelly and I uh, being in relationship We'll sometimes use it for uh, to celebrate occasions like the last time we, we rolled was on New Year's Eve. We often roll on New Year's Eve, uh, and so it 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 and and oh, <laughs> excuse me for jumping around here, but it just occurred to me another beautiful recreational celebrational use of MDMA is with groups of people. And I, I have a whole section in the in the book about groups, group experiences, carefully chosen and only very carefully curated groups of people, where you know exactly who's there and you know that these people are going to get along, can be absolutely ecstatic experiences. And I've hosted Shelley and I have hosted uh, many of them over the years. And we have found them to be the happiest days of our lives. Thank you for sharing that, Charlie. It's so, so important to have that sacred space whenever, um, you know, you are going to do any kind of uh, psychedelic um, yes. substance and or doing a, a deep healing journey, like even in a therapy session. It's so important to have that 
sacred and safe space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you mentioned, you and your wife have celebrated with MDMA, you've celebrated with groups of friends, and you've referred to MDMA as this emotional super glue for relationships. So over the years, um, how has your relationship with your wife changed, evolved, um, transformed, deepened uh, because of your celebration experiences? I like the question, um, but I have to say that Shelley and I are unusually compatible, uh, and we learned that from the beginning. So we would be good without MDMA. We would be good if we were sober. Uh, we didn't have a lot of crap between us to heal, and we didn't have a lot of conflicts. I mean, we have conflicts. We have we hit snags like every couple does but nothing that ever threatened the relationship. So MDMA for us was sort of, been, it's been the frosting on our cake and has just added a whole other level of connection, heart-to-heart -heart bonding. I mean, can imagine having 70 ecstatic experiences with, with somebody you love. What could be more bonding than that? There's 70 experiences of that feel like climbing the mountain and looking out at this beautiful view about where you've been together, looking out at where you are now and using those experiences to envision where you might want to go together. Like we use it to envision, for example, where we might one day move to or even more common day things like what we want, you know, new furniture we want to get. We use it to envision. Uh, so it's added this whole other level of intimacy uh, and sharing and safety and well-being and compassion and empathy with each other to our, to our marriage. And uh, what could be better than that? That's so beautiful. And it, as you were describing the experience with your wife and your friends and having these deep moments of connection, I got so nostalgic because I know exactly what you're talking about. Like those nights that I've also had with my friends rolling in my early 20s are some of the most beautiful experiences. And it really is because of that deep, deep connection that MDMA uh, brings you into. I mean, all you can really see is the pure love in others. Yes, It, it really is such a beautiful medicine. And I mean, when we talk about empathy, empathy is really the ability um, to understand another fully and to relate to others it's connection, right? And yes. yeah, I really think like the the ultimate experience of empathy is that feeling of connection and relating to everyone and everything to, to the entire universe, if you will. Oh. And I'm really curious, Charlie, have you experienced a uh, spiritual transformation or very like beautiful spiritual moments through the medicine of empathy or MDMA, or maybe even other uh, psychedelics you, you've uh, tried in your psychonaut days? Sure. Um, yeah, I still experiment with, 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 with other substances. I just want to tweak your definition of empathy a little. But for me, uh, I, 
I, I don't have the kind of empathy with the whole universe that you're talking about. Um, empathy for me is a person-to-person -person thing uh, where I am not just understanding in my head what they are saying and going through, but in my being, in my heart, in my gut, uh, I can really experience as best as I can what their experience is. That's empathy. Uh, and that's the type of connection which is, to use uh, a word that's been used here today, sacred. And that uh, is really, in essence, a spiritual experience for me because it takes me out of myself and out of my own head and into the moment with another person. And suddenly time just sort of evaporates. And it's just that other person and me and everything else drops away into the into the the holy moment and uh and that feeling of profound connection can be transformative and i guess is what could be called spiritual and also to answer your question more fully i have with mdma and other substances like lsd psilocybin ayahuasca uh, experienced a sense of being one with nature uh, and with the greater universe. And once I experienced that, I've never been the same. You know, it's like when you, I, I like to call these peak experiences because I get a peek into heaven and I get to look around heaven and see what's there. And after something like that, I'm, I'm not the same. I'm never the same after something like that. It's a, it's a kind of transformation. I still come down after it, come back to earth, come back into my solitary body and into my head, but with a, a new perspective on who I am and how small I am compared to the world, which is actually kind of a relief to, to realize that I'm not that significant and, and uh, life will go on way after I'm gone. And uh, these, these experiences have been just, uh, I, you know, words fail. Uh, it's uh it's hard to, to, to say more about it, but it, it does make me feel, uh, it gives me the sense of, of connection and serenity and helps me surrender to the moment and to what is. That's so beautifully said. Um, yeah, it, it is really hard to find the words, but we've, that doesn't mean we will not stop trying to put these experiences <laughs> into words. It's like chasing the horizon. <laughs> exactly. So I think that you just opened up a box that I I need to dig more into. So you mentioned experiences with other substances. I uh -huh. would love for you to take us back into um, the days before you were a psychonaut. What led you to go down this path 
What were you seeking? Where were you at? And I also really want to know, like, what about MDMA stuck out to you so much? Because it really sounds like this is like your medicine of choice. Like, why MDMA? Why was that the one you decided to write a book about? Mm, okay. Wow. All right. So these are really two questions. Um, so before I was a psychonaut, I was... Uh, <laughs> Uh, what do they say in Amazing Grace? I once was blind, but now I see. Um, I, I, uh, uh, I was uh, uh, a teenage nerd, loner, uh, in the suburbs in the mid-60s, and uh, an unpopular kid feeling pretty alienated and a real sense of separation and uh, would eat lunch in the schoolroom cafeteria with the other alienated nerdy kids. And then the counterculture came to town and we were the first to embrace it. And suddenly we who were on the outs became the in crowd. And the people who were the jocks and what that's what we call the, the guys who were into athletics and who were into uh, women and cars and, and sports and, and all that, they suddenly looked like they were on the outs and they were looking in and they were envying us. And in my crowd, uh, uh, the most um, uh, curious of, of us and the most uh, intellectual of us and the most daring of us started exploring with these compounds known as psychedelics. I was late to that game. I didn't start until I was 20 when I had my uh, crash pad in the East Village in, in, in the late 60s. Uh, and I was the... Uh, the one at the, at, at the high school parties that uh, uh, was like the designated uh, sitter that people, if they were freaking out, could come to and 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 I would talk them down. So it was my that was way before I knew that I was going to become a psychotherapist. But I guess it should have made me realize right then and there what my uh, what where, where I was headed. I was just thinking the same thing, Charlie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So 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 then I started, uh, 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 and, and my first trip was with mescaline in my crash pad, and um, that I could talk about all day. But uh, you had another question um, about what about MDMA made it my drug of choice? Why why it's it's it stuck out? I guess because I was seeing it through Shelley's eyes and uh, realizing what an amazing uncanny compound it was because it was so user-friendly. It's not hallucinogenic. Uh, it's If it is, and then it's probably not MDMA or you've taken way too much. Um, it's generally very uh, easy to, to navigate. It's difficult to have a bad experience, especially if you're set and setting are, are right. Um, and besides, we in the psychedelic community don't call it a bad experience or a bummer anymore. We call it a difficult experience and one that can be worked with and, and grown from. 
Um, but uh, we found that we could be out and about and, uh, and and outdoors and doing things, and people around us might would just think we're having a nice day. So we like that. We like that we could uh, do MDMA and go to the park and have a picnic or or uh, be on vacation and have what we call a trip within the trip. It's really a, a role within our, our vacation, like uh, like we've done in, in various countries. And and uh, and we don't have to be paranoid that, oh, everyone can tell we're high. No, uh, we're just looking like we're enjoying ourselves. And so we like the versatility of it. We, we like that we can do that or we can stay home together on New Year's Eve, look deeply into each other's eyes. I put my hand on, it was sit cross-legged from each other. I put my hand on her heart. She puts her hand on my heart and we're just communing. It's so versatile. So I guess that's why I love it so much. Right. As long as you're getting the stuff that is pure MDMA and you're in a safe setting. Yes. It really is hard to have a bad experience. I mean, I've, I've been quoted to say that you can't go wrong with MDMA. And again, that caveat is that it's the real deal and you haven't taken too much and you're in a good setting. And let me add there, <laughs> if you don't mind, Lana, that, that uh, if you're doing it for the first time, please do it at home. Do it in a space where you feel comfortable because often somebody doing it for the first time, I have found, I've, I've like initiated many friends in, in, into, in, into a first experience. And often what they want to do is cocoon. They just want to wrap themselves in a blanket and just see, you know, how do I work with this? What's, what's it saying to me for hours the first time? Uh, so if you're doing it for the first time, please uh, give yourself that option of staying at home uh, because it's a, it is a powerful medication and uh, um, you want to have the option of being alone and quiet if you want or putting on music if you want or going outside if you want um, and, uh, and, and it's best to do it, especially the first time with somebody there who you like and trust and uh, who can really be with you and stay with you and maybe help you navigate the territory. Yes, absolutely. The house role is always the best. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I have a question for you about your experiences with ayahuasca. So hmm. it's often said that ayahuasca can be like, you know, 10 years of therapy in a single night. And um this is the medicine that I work with the most. And I have found that to be very true. I don't know if I would like put a number like 10 years on it, but I've just found that ayahuasca is like this therapist for me who mm. really is just like the best therapist I've ever had and who like deeply understands me. I would love to hear your perspective on this as someone who has done ayahuasca and who is a psychotherapist. Mm. I believe all these medicines uh, can be used for therapeutic purposes and cut through many years of normal talk therapy. Uh, that's why if you uh, if you do a medicine and are in therapy to help integrate the experience, your therapy can and personal growth can develop much much quicker. 
so with ayahuasca, um, I, it, it's, I found it to be a very intelligent plant uh, or combination of plants. And, uh, and it, it speaks to me in English uh, and, and, and has things to say to me about me. It's sort of, uh, and I'm not the first person to say this, and I'm not the first person to experience this, that it seems to uh, enter my system and sort of do an inventory of, uh, of my soul and let me know the results of the inventory and points me to where I need to work and where I don't need to work, where I'm fine. I've heard many people say, yeah, the plant told me after the third time, don't come back. You, you don't have anything more to learn here. I've heard many people say that. Uh, it said that to me after the third time, actually, but that was several years ago. I'm going to go back to it to see if there's more there. Uh, it also, for me personally, helped with this journey uh, about my mortality, which I could speak more if, if, about if you want. Um, and also helped me realize that I am part of the natural world and really helped me understand that I'm not that much different from the animals and I'm not much different from vegetation. We're all made of the same thing, essentially and that I'm a part of this and that I had better do my part in honoring nature and helping nature out because uh, it needs all the help uh, it can get. Charlie, would you say in your experiences um, as a psychonaut, um, you know, having psychedelic experiences with both plants and those that are synthetic or man-made, have you seen only this connection to nature happen more with the plant medicines or does that also exist in the synthetic psychedelics the latter it, okay. it also exists in in, in and, and you know there's a lot of talk within the psychedelic community of which is better the natural substances uh, or or the synthetic ones and uh, I don't think it's a good Argument. I mean, it's, it's always a good discussion, but um, some people seem to feel superior to those who just like the synthetic chemicals and um, uh, kind of elitism that I've found. I'm not saying you you are like that, but I'm saying that some people. I have experienced that from some people, and it's it's really a false dichotomy. All these substances turn off. The default mode network in the brain turns off our normal default way of thinking and feeling, dissolves the ego temporarily. All these substances do this uh, and, and bring down the defenses and help us see old things in new ways and recalibrate our existence, recalibrate our relationship to ourselves, to others, to the world at large. So I have found that MDMA does that in its own way and with its own flavor, just like acid does, just like ayahuasca does, just like mushrooms do. Well said. Well said. I agree with you. They all have their own spirit, their own gifts, and their own 
purpose for where you're at in your life. When I yes. was doing MDMA every weekend, that was my medicine because I that's the place that I was at. It was therapeutic and healing for me in a way that, yeah, it was a little bit destructive and mm. <laughs> all these, but that was what I needed at that time to survive. Mm. Right. Mm. So yeah, they, they definitely all have their place. And Charlie, I would actually love it if you would tell us more about how these medicines have helped you to um, process and deal with mortality and death and dying and all of that stuff. How many hours do you have? Uh, as much as you feel you would like to share, Charlie, we are here for it. Yeah, it's, oh my. it's definitely wow. an it's an interesting topic because um, yeah. no one has really spoken on it yet on the podcast, and it's not something that I've really started processing through my work with psychedelics. So I would just love to hear more. Sure. I had uh, I, I lost my father in 1994. And a year later, almost exact to the day, a year later, in 1995, I decided to have my first intentional psychedelic experience to honor my father's death. Uh, because before that, it was all recreational to me, for me. So I did something I never did before or since. I took two grams of psilocybin mushrooms and ingested them. And then 20 minutes later, took another two grams. And because I knew that would be unique. And I've never heard anyone do this uh, with that kind of intention. Anyway, uh, at first, you know, after an hour or so, uh, the first dose hit. And it was like, it was, it was lovely, really. And, and all those wonderful closed-eyed visuals and open-eyed visuals. And then the second dose hit. And I lay on the bed. I started hyperventilating. I experienced what could only be called a full-body orgasm. And I was transported. I was no longer on this planet. I was flying somewhere between Earth and Mars, it seemed, and out of space. And I realized that what had been left down on Earth was my body and my personality, which is, of course, what you drop when you die. You drop your body, you drop your ego, you drop your personality. That's all gone forever. What's left is what I was experiencing. At least that's what the mushrooms seemed to be saying to me, that Death or dying, which was something I've always been scared of, it, the mushrooms seem to be saying to me, dying is just a scary portal into bliss. And indeed, I was lying there in bliss. I had no will of my own. Uh, I had no personality, no ego. I was just in a state of pure oneness with everything else. And all knowledge was of the universe was accessible to me, but I had no hunger for it because I had no desire for anything, no attachment to anything. I was just one with it all. Since that experience, 
I've never looked at dying and death the same. I'm still scared of dying and I'm still spooked by death, but not as much. And I realized that it's really like a teacher of mine, uh, Ramdas, uh, said, dying is like taking off an old shoe. Uh, it's just, uh, it, it's just a, a kind of a relief and a, a complete letting go. Wow, that was so beautifully said, Charlie. Thank you for sharing that experience with us. I had goosebumps because there were certain similarities to that journey that you were recalling that I've had in my experiences with ayahuasca and psilocybin where I've left my body and gone to other places and forgot who Zoe was and what mm. earth was about. And it's it's profoundly healing because I think it there's this common lesson that people recall in psychedelic journeys that you you know, you leave your body, you leave planet Earth, and you see that it's all perfect. Like everything is yes. all perfect, and you can let go of that worry. Yes. And and it's that that liberation that once you have an experience like that, you can't go back because right. you want like you can't fully go back to that worrying like monkey brain, if you will, because you've had an experience where you saw the the universe or you saw existence, you saw life or something so much different than um, what you had been taught just uh, by your yes. upbringing. Yes, yes. And that's really liberating. Uh, and uh, that's why we who are in the psychedelic space tend to want to proselytize and tell the world, you've got to do this. You've got to try this. Yeah. Because uh, we, we feel like we're onto something, like it's a whole different way of being here. Yes. Uh, a whole different perspective, and it's 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 very exciting and 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 can be liberating. Definitely, and um, I want to ask you. I had a recent experience where I was sitting with uh, cannabis, um, a special meditative um, type, and I was asking some questions. I was doing some self inquiry on what are my attachments to the timeline of my life? Because uh, what I seem to be shedding right now, coming to coming close to my thirties, is this society's norms or expectations that I feel like have been placed on me as a woman being this age and where I should be versus where I am. And what the cannabis mm. showed me was that underneath all of that was just a, a fear of mortality, which is something that I thought, oh, I've had these psychedelic experiences with ayahuasca and psilocybin. Like I'm not afraid of dying, but it was afraid of not doing all the things that I want to do in this lifetime and not trusting that I'll be able to do all of that, which I desire. Uh, yeah. And I wanted to know, uh, you know, your reflections on that as I tell you, you know, the fear of death versus like fear of um, living because it sounds like MDMA has given you this um, just this whole newfound deep love for life. Yes. And also my life has taught me that, they, you know, they say life can be, sh can, uh, life is short, but it can really be long. And there's a lot that you can do in a year or 10 years or a lifetime. I didn't learn that I really wanted to be a psychotherapist until I turned 40. Wow. I didn't find the love of my life until I was 51. So um, I like to tell 
younger people, uh, if, if they want to hear it, um, that, uh, yeah, you don't have to do everything in, uh, the, in what this culture tells you the time frame should be. Um, that that uh, even when it comes to, to to women who have biological clocks and all that, and so uh, society or families will pressure you to uh, get married and have children. Well, you may never want to do that, or you may want to do it with a different kind of partner, or you might want to do it alone, or you might want to adopt, or you know, there, there's so many options so many options and to, you don't want to be rushed before you're ready to do anything that you know you that you don't want to do in this one life that you've been given here in this form thank you charlie that's so beautiful i know that's going to resonate with so many of our listeners that was just so special to hear your words on that thank you oh, thank you <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. De- I definitely needed to hear that. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. So, Charlie, this is going to be the last question for me before we talk a little bit about your book. Um, what are your thoughts on how psychedelics, MDMA, how can they benefit the field of psychotherapy with their informed integration into the field? Well, Lana, uh, you know... These medicines are already starting to transform my profession, but they're going to come as like a tsunami. So many other therapists are just not prepared for what's going to happen to my profession because once these become more commonly used, and especially once they become legal, which of course was what the trend is now, and MDMA is going to be a prescription medication in two years, according to the current uh, rate of, of, of progress, uh, people are going to be demanding therapists guide them through uh, psychedelic experiences or help them integrate psychedelic experiences. And it's going to cut the course of therapy down, uh, where therapy all, normally takes months or years. It's going to take weeks or months in general. So it's going to totally transform my field. And uh, so many therapists are just, they just haven't gotten the news. Uh, they, they just don't understand what's, what's going to happen to them. Um, but, uh, but all this is, is good for the, uh, the consumer of any type of uh, growthful uh, profession and, 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 and any type of healing uh, that they need because uh, so much more will be available to, to all of us in terms of, of healing and doing it in, uh, in, in a quicker time if one is really willing to put in the work. Oh, beautifully said. I love it. That is definitely the direction we're headed in. And we mm. can only pray that it will be done with reverence, with respect, and with yes. the right tools and with people leading this way who have just good intentions and beautiful intentions of healing and evolution of consciousness. <sighs> it's so exciting. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Who should be reading it? What can we expect to learn from it? Okay. Well, uh, listening to ecstasy is 
it's a love story. It's an adventure story about how my wife and I ventured into this forbidden world of drug users in the early 2000s and found that world to be enchanted. And it opened up our lives to friendship and fun and freedom and all that good stuff. And uh, and I, it's also, I, there's a chapter in there called Senior High about how it helps uh, help me uh, navigate uh, into uh, navigate the aging process. And um, and there's, uh, as I've said, there's a guide to safe use at the end. But it's, it's also, uh, it, it's, it's many things. It's all those things. It's also a memoir about my life and my, my uh, experiences in the 60s and, and 70s. And making a connection between the counterculture of the 60s and the uh, burner culture uh, the, and, and rave culture uh, today and how there is uh, so much in common between um, my generation that experimented back then and the psychonauts of today. There's so much in common and there's uh, an intergenerational dialogue like we're doing right now uh, that can take place that I try to begin in, in, in the book uh, because Generations have so much to teach each other and so much to learn from each other. So the book is about all that. It's incredible. It is filled with just so many photos of yourself and Shelly and just awesome stuff. I love it. And thank you so much for sharing your voice with our audience today and for representing a different generation than us millennials. Uh, we really, really appreciate it and couldn't agree more that there's so much to learn intergenerationally. So Charlie, let our audience know where they can find you. Well, you can find me on my YouTube channel, Listening to Ecstasy, or you can uh, find my website, listeningtoecstasy.com, and uh, connect with me through the website if you like. Amazing. And where can folks buy your book? Well, you can buy the, buy the book uh, on the Amazon site, uh, on uh, the Simon & Schuster site. If you don't like dealing with Amazon, some people don't these days. Uh, so you can go to Simon & Schuster. Uh, you could go to my publisher, Inner Traditions. So there are many, many places. It's, it's sold everywhere. Amazing. And if you are listening from the States and you'd like to enter for a chance to win one of two copies of Listening to Ecstasy, all you have to do is go ahead and rate and review The Modern Psychedelics on Apple Podcasts, screenshot that review and email it us to us over at hello at modernpsychedelics.net. And for extra entries, you can go ahead and follow inner underscore traditions on Instagram for extra entries. All of these details will be linked down in the show notes below. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Zoe and Lana. Thank you so much for taking the time to share space with us on the Modern Psychedelics podcast today. We're on social media at Modern Psychedelics. Please like, share, and subscribe for more expansive content on a daily basis. 
If this episode sparked something within, please let us know by leaving a review of our podcast on Apple. The work begins after you come back down to earth, and we're standing shoulder to shoulder with you doing it.